good evening and welcome to today's show on Navarro Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Uh, this evening I have the immeasurable pleasure. I know I say that all the time, but this may be the first time, and if it's not, my apologies, that I'm joined by Rivka Brown. Rivka, how are we? Very well. Fresh from Notting Hill Carnival this weekend, which was really fun. You, you enjoyed yourself, I hope? Yeah, lots of sober fun. Lots of sober fun. Okay, well, I'll take your word for it. Uh, coming up on tonight's show, Spanish football remains embroiled in a misogyny scandal after the Women's World Cup final. Nadine Doris has finally sent her official resignation letter, and this time it really is official. And Labour's Rachel Reeves has delivered yet another disappointment, saying that the Labour Party has ruled out a wealth tax. Stay tuned for all of that. But first, we'll be discussing ULES, which is being expanded in London today. It's like Christmas for woke people like me and the rest of us here at Navarro Media, or so the media would have you believe. You would think, if you listened to the Mail or the Telegraph or the Sun, that I woke up at 6am screaming, it's ULES Day! Happy as a child on Christmas morning. That's not quite entirely true. But I have a question for you, an answer honestly. If there was a ULES, would you support it? If there was a ULES where you live, would you support it? Um, <clears throat> if you're in something like Bournemouth or Birmingham, if there was a ULES, would you be a fan? Uh, I'd like to do a poll on that if we can in the chat. A first story. Today sees Boris Johnson's ULES scheme expand to cover Greater London. That's right. In all the noise around the expansion, it's often forgotten that the ultra-low emission zone in central London was introduced by none other than Johnson when he was mayor. And the Tories applauded. But now they've changed their tune. This was Transport Secretary Mark Harper on BBC Breakfast. I just wanted to read you a quote from the Mayor of London. The world's first ULES zone is an essential measure to help improve air quality in our city and protect the health of Londoners. That was former Mayor of London, Conservative Boris Johnson. This was a Conservative policy originally, however critical you are of it now. Now, the expansion of the ULES zone to cover the whole of Greater London is a decision by the Labour Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, supported by the Labour leader. And if you look at the Mayor's own impact assessment, it will have a minor to negligible effect on air quality. So it's very clear, despite what the Mayor says, this isn't about improving air quality in Greater London. It's about raising money from Londoners for him. Uh, and this is something, given the challenges people have with the cost of living, that's absolutely not the right thing to do. It wasn't just Boris Johnson, though, was it? Former Conservative Transport Secretary Grant Chaps, your predecessor in your job, he wanted the congestion charge in London expanded three years ago. He wanted it expanded, not just started. No, he didn't. This was about the... Uh, this has been put around by the Labour Party. This was about the post-pandemic situation and it was about the expansion of the ULES to the north and south yeah. London circular area, which was something that was a manifesto commitment by the mayor. The government does not support the rollout of ULES to the whole of Greater London. We've been very clear about that. And in the latest letter from the Department for Transport, we made it clear that no central government money could be used to roll it out. It had to be funded by the mayor. So is the ULES expansion just a moneymaker for Zadiq Khan? Is he trying to get more money from the golden goose of London drivers? Here's how the mayor responded to Harper's claim. If this was about making money, I would have acceded to the demand from the government to expand the congestion charge 
much wider than it currently is. That would have been a cash grab. But I said no. If it was a cash grab, as the government's saying, just to raise money, I'd have acceded to their demand to expand the ULES without proper consultation and a proper scrappage scheme. This is about helping our air be cleaner. And in a couple of years' time, TfL have uh, predicted there will be no additional money made because of the number of uh, non-compliant vehicles. But every penny net made is used to reinvest in public transport, improving buses in outer London, improving public transport in our uh, city. And here's the irony of ironies. It was this government that published air quality directives, the right thing to do, requiring cities to clean up the, their air. It was this government that has supported clean air zones around the country, the right thing to do, in Bristol, in Birmingham, in Bath. But for some reason, they refuse to support London and are, and are trying to make, you know, party political gain out of a public health policy. The ULES expansion has been controversial amongst Londoners. Polling by ITV reveals that 47% of the city's residents are in favour of it, with 42% against. And 50% think that the mayor isn't doing enough to support drivers switching to compliant vehicles. At the moment, drivers can get up to £2,000 in grants to help them upgrade their cars. So why isn't Khan doing more? Well, it's partly because the Tories have refused to fund the scheme. The scheme they originally started. When Bristol introduced a clean air zone, the government gave it a £42 million fund. And when Bradford did the same, it got £30 million. But there's been nothing to support clean air in London, despite Khan asking the government for £110 million to help the city's residents. Why? Part of Mark Harper's argument against the scheme was that the ULA's expansion would lead to only insignificant improvements in London's air quality. On Sky News, Sadiq Khan was asked about the science. On the science, there are others who have pointed to the science and say it doesn't reduce air pollution by this much. The LSE research shows widespread but relatively small reductions and even some increases in air pollution. Overall, the, the authors of the LSE report found that an average reduction of less than 3% in nitrogen dioxide levels and insignificant changes in something called PM2.5 concentrations. I mean... So it, it isn't conclusive, is it? I think you may be referring to the Engineering Department for Imperial, their report, not LSE. Uh, so let me be quite close. You've got the Engineering Department for LSE who did a report over between five to eight weeks. Uh, on the other side, you've got the Air Quality Department of Imperial College, King's College, Queen Mary's University, LSE, uh, the World Health Organization, the Chief Medical Officer, uh, experts at Great Ormond Street, experts at the Children's Evelina Hospital, GP practices around our city showing the benefits of uh, ULIS and the disbenefits of uh, air pollution. You've seen a but, but the fact is that some scientists are saying that that what you are saying of the of the benefits is not as much as you are saying it is. You're talking about one scientist, I am. one PhD student yeah. at Imperial College, and I'm giving you a comparing that to all the other scientists who say the alternative, how do we explain a third fewer children being admitted to hospital with air pollution-related illnesses? How do we explain the fact that the vast, vast, vast majority of scientists see, have seen an almost 50% reduction in uh, air pollution in central London, a further 20% reduction of air pollution in uh, inner uh, London? The science is quite clear, actually, in relation to the consequences of air pollution and in relation to the effectiveness of uh, ULES, but also the science shows that the 10 boroughs with the largest number of premature deaths are guess where? In outer London. When you look at the 30 GP practices with the largest number of patients who've got these sorts of problems, 24 of the 30 are guess where? 
in outer London. Look at those with illnesses in London linked with uh, air pollution. More than two thirds live in, guess where? Outer London. They've not seen the benefits of uh, ULES. After today, they will. It was really good to see the mayor on top of the detail there. And I think it's really important to say with any, any policy, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers, right? Very rarely in politics can, can everybody be a winner. And the people that are winners from this policy are those who otherwise would have died from air pollution. We have around 4,000 people dying from air pollution in London every year. Of course, that's contested, but those are the figures put out there by very authoritative organizations. We have around, I think, six to seven million asthmatics in this country. Those people benefit massively. Of course, there are some losers. We'll go on to that in a second. But it's not really being said enough that there are some people really gaining from this policy change. I'm an asthmatic. I know in the middle of uh, summer when there's high emissions and there's really bad pollen and you've got this horrible confluence of factors, London is dreadful. I've been to Tehran. Guess what? London is worse. That's a pretty shocking thing to say, but London is worse. Now, some of the strongest reaction against the scheme has come from sole traders and individuals who work in areas like construction and repairs. They argue that the cost of scrapping the vehicles they need to do their work will put them out of business. But there's been some good news for them. HMRC has announced that self-employed drivers will be able to claim tax relief on the £12.50 daily charge. And when you actually drill down on the details, for these individuals, the deal for small businesses and tradespeople is actually quite good. They get to write off the charge against tax, as I just said, but they can also get grant payments of between £6,000 and £11,500. What's more, eligible businesses and sole traders can apply for up to three vans or minibuses to be scrapped or retrofitted in total. Rivka, I was looking at ULES compliant vehicles earlier on today and I found one for £10,000. So between a grant and saving on the petrol, you would be up on cash pretty quickly. You would be looking at this as a net positive if you are on top of the numbers. Is this a case of the policy being misrepresented by the media or has Sadiq Khan just failed to explain himself properly? I think it's a mixture of both, but I mean, obviously it's it's the first, you know, and we know this because as you've already said, this policy has been in place for years now and was originally introduced by Khan's predecessor, Boris Johnson. The fact that it's only now becoming a controversial scheme and not only now, but also only in London, in the Labour run, uh, you know, City of London, not, not just City of London, but sort of Greater London Authority that Sadiq Khan is mayor of and and, um, you know, he happens to be, you know, the one that this happens to be the one place in the country that the Tories are kind of uh, putting all of their effort into um, into opposing. It's, it's obviously electioneering. You know, they're supporting equivalent schemes elsewhere in the country, as you've just said. So obviously, this is ULES being turned into a culture war. This is ULES being turned into a lightning rod teeing up the 2024 election when climate is going to be the sort of one of the dividing lines between um, um, you know, the Tories and Keir Starmer, who is in the pocket of Just Stop Oil being paid by Just Stop Oil. This is this is a kind of forerunner to, to that fact. As you say, ULES is a bloody great deal. You can get 
almost £10,000, over £10,000, depending on the, the, the type of vehicle that you have, um, to scrap it and upgrade it for a ULES compliant one. And that's only if you're in the one in 10 people in Greater London that happens to have a non-ULES compliant vehicle. You know, many of the people that we hear complaining about uh, ULES and, the, and its cost uh, and, and the potential costs uh, incurred probably have ULES compliant vehicles. It's a total nonsense, a confected storm in a teacup. Um, but I think we need to understand also, as you say, um, there will be winners and there will be losers. Perhaps you're right. There might be some people for whom there is a marginal cost incurred to having to pay for this if they can't uh, claim back the exact amount that they might have paid um, on their tax on their tax return. But one of the other costs of living in London is respiratory illness. You know, half a million of us are predicted to suffer from respiratory illness in the, in the next 30 years if we don't do something about London's air pollution. We need to start talking in much more bold and unequivocal and sort of, um, you know, un, un, unfearless terms about about the cost of, 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 of the climate crisis and the fact that all of us stand to lose from a city in which we cannot breathe, not just the people that are paying for the, for, for, for the ultra low emission zone. Like it's a total, it's, 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 I would say it's kind of mm, rhetorical cowardice on the part of Khan, who's probably, you know, himself playing a bit of an electoral game and not wanting to indulge too much the kind of electioneering that the Tories are doing and not allow them to turn ULEZ into a lightning rod, which is why perhaps we've seen the kind of backtracking, the creation of loopholes for white van men, all this stuff. Really, I think he should have just stuck to his guns, made the principled argument, the cost of living in London is, uh, you know, is air pollution. You get asthma, you get respiratory failure, like the nine-year-old, uh, you know, um, uh, I think her name was Ella, Ella Kissy Deborah, who died in 2013 from respiratory failure at the age of nine years old. You know, we should be making emotive, impassioned, principled arguments for ULES and the need for its expansion and how we are all winners from the scheme rather than, as Khan is doing, playing a sort of, you know, uh, a game to try and appease everyone. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, initially, I saw all these caveats and these opt-outs and these grants and these payment schemes and I thought, wouldn't it just be more sensible to have like a £5 charge and have none of that stuff, right? Because then if people complain, you go, look, it's £5 a day, chill out. But then I thought, well, actually, no, one of the major ideas behind this whole project is to incentivize people to adopt, you know, less polluting vehicles, hybrids, ideally electric. And I suppose what we're seeing here is really a turbocharging of adoption of, yeah, hybrid electric vehicles, which is being led on by the state, which I think I, I'm sort of being one round to it. Before we move to the next story, though, Rivka, we were talking about this before we came on air. A lot of resistance to this is coming from people who live in Buckinghamshire, Essex, who commute in, and they only see the costs of this, right? And so let's try and be reasonable here. Let's try and get in their shoes. They only see the costs, and they don't experience the upside, okay? So for Londoners, there are some costs. You have to pay the charge, but there's also upside of cleaner air. But if you live in Seven Oaks, or you live in a nice part of rural, you know, Buckinghamshire, you've already got clean air, you know? So the only side of this is you're seeing, you're seeing a downside. And I think, again, it's really important to communicate this politically that's not fair. That isn't fair. You might say, well, why should I be charged, you know, the ULES charge? Why should kids, and I've seen this on the Old Kent Road, at the nursery, before school, a preschool nursery, they're playing next to a road. Why should those kids be 
God knows how many more times likely to get lung cancer or you know, respiratory conditions than your kids because they're poorer. Why should they? That's not fair either, is it? Next story. Michael Goh was planning to rip up the rule book on environment-friendly house building. Regulations around water pollution are set to be scrapped, according to an announcement made by the Department of Leveling Up today. These rules mean that currently developers are only given the go-ahead to build new homes if they can show that no extra nutrients will enter waterways from the new buildings. Once they're gone, dozens of protected areas across England will be opened up to new building development. Speaking this morning, Rishi Sunak laid out the government's reasons for the change. Well, today's announcement will unlock 100,000 new homes in communities where people want those homes to be built. That's fantastic for young first-time buyers. Also will provide an £18 billion boost to our economy and support tens of thousands of jobs. And we're able to do this because previously uh, it was a disproportionate and poorly targeted old EU ruling that blocked these homes. Thankfully, we can now reverse that. And alongside that, we're investing hundreds of millions of pounds to continue protecting and enhancing our pressure natural environment. The rules around water pollution were put in place in 2017. They were part of an EU initiative aimed at stopping algae from building up and choking off aquatic life. Builders say that the rules have put as many as 120,000 new homes on hold. That comes at a time when England's new housing supply is set to fall to its lowest level since the Second World War. But environmental campaigners say the change will be devastating for our already polluted rivers. Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust, Craig Bennett, told The Guardian this. In May, June and July, the government made promises to the British people and to Parliament that they would not lower environmental protections or standards. But just a few weeks later, they are planning to do precisely the opposite. They lied. This is a disgraceful move which undermines public trust in this government. Make no mistake, this is a license from the government for the commercial house building lobby to profit from the pollution of our rivers. This is another broken promise and makes clear that the Prime Minister would rather look after the interests of developers than the environment. Money talks. To sweeten the rule binning, the government has also announced a package worth hundreds of millions of pounds to reduce other forms of water pollution. Farmers and water companies will be given £400 million to reduce slurry leaks into rivers, and builders will be given £300 million to mitigate the impacts of nutrient leaks into the waterways. But Doug Power of Greenpeace thinks that's the wrong strategy. He told The Guardian this. Instead of allowing house builders to cut corners, the Sunak administration should make sure we have the right infrastructure to handle our sewage so we can build new homes without sacrificing our river's health. But that would require them to do what they've spectacularly failed to do so far, forcing water firms and house builders to invest their profits in upgrading treatment plants and pipes to a standard that a modern, functional country would expect. Rivka, this policy would make some sense if we'd been building enough homes before 2017, but I was going through the data and this made me laugh. We were actually building more homes in 2018 than 2016. So the idea that this was somehow an obstacle to a, a housing boom doesn't quite add up. What do you make of it? I mean, you're so right to light upon that figure. And it's exactly the same with the last story that we talked about. The UK has already had a major house building problem. Brexit, the EU and its regulations are not what has been holding us back. 
this it's it's, it's an entirely confected idea designed to allow Michael Gove to have his moment to be like, ha ha, fuck you, EU. We are free from your shackles, and now uh, we will build so many more homes, homes that are surrounded by polluted rivers that no one wants to live in. Um, it, it it's just such a self defeating uh, policy, you know. You're you're a well-intentioned, maybe private renter. You bought your first home um, in a town in England um, and you just moved in. Okay, so maybe uh, the the building works a bit shoddy. Maybe, you know, as we've all seen on those sort of new build Twitter accounts, uh, there are some laughable sort of design choices that have been made, but you're relatively happy. You take your first stroll down your uh, nearby river to find hundreds of dead fish uh, floating belly up in the water. Like what? What scenes await for these 18,000 new homeowners, you know? Like, what kind of homes are we are we building people? What kind of planet do we actually want to live on? One with millions of new homes that are built upon sewage and, uh, you know, and, and a burned planet. You know, it's a, it's a total, uh, it's just laughable, the idea that we're building all these homes in areas that will basically be uninhabitable as a result of the, of the tearing apart of regulation. I think also it's worth mentioning the government already has nutrient uh, mitigation schemes in place that are being made fantastic use of by by councils around the UK. Somerset Council recently bid for something like 10 10 million pounds um, to mitigate the effects of nutrients on its house building, opening up um, 18,000 new homes for development. We already have ways in which to mitigate the effects of nutrient damage whilst building uh, properties. There's no need to rip apart the existing regulation. We can work within the existing regulation by upgrading our treatment facilities, by you know, all sorts of existing measures that require capital investment, fine, but that ensure that we don't need to make the climate crisis and the housing crisis a zero-sum game. But the Tories have chosen to make it a zero-sum game because that allows them to have a kind of cheap win against the EU and a cheap win as we've already spoken about, against kind of climate terrorists, you know. But really, the only people who are winning are developers and everyone else, including all the people that are going to buy these totally worthless new homes built on sewage-ridden rivers, we're all losers. Yeah, I love I love the honesty of it, Rivka, which is, you know, sorry, we can't build new homes unless you see nappies and shit floating past, you know, your your view from the window, uh, your, you know, your view from the kitchen. Sorry, it's absolutely impossible. This thing we've done since, you know, the dawn of, the, you know, the, the last 12,000 years, since human settlement, we have built homes for people. We built homes for people. We can't do that now unless you're surrounded by crap. And I, I really want to get down to this point. This is really important. The Tories are going to try and present this as we're cutting red tape, we're rolling back the state, you know, let the market decide. Let's talk about some numbers. We are, we are paying money. The taxpayer is paying money to dump shit into rivers. We're paying money, seriously. Farmers and water companies are going to get 400 million pounds. So we are, with the taxpayer, we're giving farmers and water companies, allegedly privately owned water companies, which pay out shareholder shareholder dividends, we're going to give them 400 million pounds to put shit in, 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 in rivers. Overall, they're not doing that. Obviously, the house builders are. Then we're going to give builders another 300 million pounds. So we're paying 700 million pounds to reduce water quality in this country. Does that make any sense to anyone? And like I say, this is in regard to uh, regulatory changes that came, came out in 2017. We built more homes in 2018 than in 2016. 
doesn't make any sense. You would think when the government announces something which costs 700 million pounds, which frankly just seems like a backhander to house building companies, you would think the media, beyond the Guardian, and the opposition might say something. 700 million pounds, quite a lot. 700 million pounds, we're talking about housing. You could build lots of houses with 700 million pounds, but because this is Britain, because we have the Conservative Party in charge, no, we'll, we'll, we'll use the 700 million pounds instead to fuck up rivers even more. How about that? We can't do the homes, but we can put loads of effluent in, in our waterways. It'll have to do. Crazy. You know, you, you might think I'm joking here. This is literally the facts of the matter. Incredible. Our next story. If the polls are right, then the Labour Party is likely to win the next general election. If they do, then Rachel Reeves will almost certainly enter 11 Downing Street as Chancellor of the Exchequer. So it's kind of important what she plans to do. And that became a little clearer after an interview she did this weekend with the Sunday Telegraph. Before we get to what Ms Reeves had to say, I want to start with this scene setting towards the top of the article. In the clearest break yet from the hard left policies that lost the 2019 election for Labour under Jeremy Corbyn, Ms Reeves puts an end to speculation over the prospect of either a discreet wealth or mansion tax or higher levies for those earning money from stocks and shares or buy-to-let properties. Let me translate that. Wanting to tax wealth the same as we tax work is considered hard left by the Telegraph. Ironically, I think that indicates ideological extremism from them. To think it's normal that we should tax work more than wealth is insane. But here's the thing. Rachel Reeves appears to agree with that. She thinks we should tax work. Somebody who goes and works eight-hour days, five days a week, they should be paying more tax than somebody who's uh, got a big capital gain from selling a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth home. And yet, in 2021, Reeves said that, quote, people who get their income through wealth should have to pay more. Specifically, that meant people who, quote, get their incomes through stocks and shares and buy-to-let properties. What happened, Rachel? You were really onto something. You sounded like Ash Sarkar. Reeves says she made those remarks in the context of Sunak putting up national insurance contributions. This is when he was uh, chancellor. Something the prime minister said was required to raise £12 billion. But this is why Reeves says her position is different now. I don't have any spending plans that require us to raise £12 billion worth of money, so I don't need a wealth tax or any of those things. We have no plans for a wealth tax. We don't have any plans to increase taxes outside of what we've said. I don't see the way to prosperity as being through taxation. I want to grow the economy. I want to grow the economy. Isn't that great? Like, I, hey, I can, be, I, can, I can work as a chance to exchequer. Here's my politics. I would simply grow the economy. Everybody's been saying that 15 years. It hasn't happened. Anyway, it's incredible how Reeves acknowledges that she, quote, doesn't have any spending plans that require us to raise money, because what she's doing here is admitting that she has the choice to raise money for a policy if she wanted to do so. So when things like lifting the two-child uh, benefit cap are suggested to her, she says they can't do it because it's uncosted. They, they haven't got the money. We haven't costed it. Rachel, you can't say we're different to the Tories, but then also say, actually, we have no fundamental difference to them, so we don't need to pay for anything different. Either you're different or you're not different. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? 
Uh, Reeves was also asked whether Sturm had ditched his 2020 commitment to increasing the top rate of income tax. She replied, yes, telling The Telegraph this. The tax burden is at its highest in 60, maybe even 70 years. I don't see a route towards having more money for public services that is through taxing our way there. It is going to be through growing our way there. I would simply grow the economy. And that's why the policies that we've set out are all about how we can encourage businesses to invest in Britain. So no new wealth taxes and no increases on the top rate of income tax. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. I personally think wealth taxes should go up and pay for stuff that would coincidentally help businesses like better infrastructure. But at least Reeves is being honest here. You can't always say that about Keir Starmer. And there's also the argument that you shouldn't increase taxes in a downturn. That isn't especially controversial. After all, John Maynard Keynes said the same thing. So perhaps the most concerning part of what Reeves said came next. The Telegraph writing this. Ms. Reeves said she would overturn a minister knows best approach to incorporate firms more closely into decisions made in Whitehall. Let me say that again. Private firms we brought in to work more closely with government to make political decisions. Now, I thought we had politicians to make political decisions. Isn't that what they're paid for? Or is their job these days simply to sit on Twitter and tell other people off, call those they disagree with racist, and repeatedly say they're the first person in their family to go to university? Didn't you know? Because guess what? I don't care. I don't care if you're the first person in your family to go to university or, or what your dad did. You aren't paid to repeatedly remind everyone how wonderful you are. But my biggest worry is this. We elect politicians to do things and to solve problems, heaven forbid, and to not create new ones. If they aren't any good, we give them the boot. And that's the idea anyway. But when you incorporate firms in decision-making, how do you think that's going to work? If they give bad advice or screw up, how does the public hold them accountable? And also, isn't there a massive conflict of interest here? Do you really want PricewaterhouseCooper helping to design tax policies or AstraZeneca telling the government which vaccines to buy and in what quantities? Isn't the very point of politicians and civil servants to make those decisions in the public interest rather than being influenced by private ones? Rivka, any hopes of a progressive Labour government seem increasingly remote, but that final comment was alarming, wasn't it? I mean, Rachel Reeves is treating the economy like a Kickstarter. She's like, you know, saying to private uh, investors, you know, overseas investors, if you give us 300 million, if you give us a billion, uh, you could have a seat at the table. You could overrule a minister when it comes to environmental policy. This is not how our politics is supposed to work, that for just 500 million pounds, you could get a free gift, which means the one power of veto over any government minister of your choosing. I'm not saying that foreign investment is necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying that the way that Rachel Reeves is, is kind of courting it in this particularly sort of, I don't know, some might use the term cucked sort of manner, is, is, is just so excruciating to watch. You know, I, I was watching a, um, a video earlier today of Yanis Varoufakis, the former, um, well, her former counterpart in Greece, saying that when he was chancellor there, uh, the, the Chinese approached him for um, potential investment in, in a port city there. Um, and, and, you know, he was in the process of making a deal with them when it got nixed by, um, by the EU. But the terms of that deal were really interesting. They uh, agreed on collective bargaining with the dock workers. They agreed on a huge amount, 180 million pounds of investment just in the first year in the port. Um, and they agreed on profit sharing with um, the Greek government. And so, you know, 
it's not to say that foreign investment is necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but that Rachel Reeves is rolling over already uh, for, for investors and basically handing them the keys to Whitehall and just saying, have a fun time, guys, like see you in 2029, whatever it will be. Um, and, you know, I think there's also something uh, wishful about her thinking that there will be any foreign direct investment and that foreign investment or private investment could solve any of Britain's problems. And I think... Um, you should look in this case to a country like Japan. The UK already has one of the lowest um, corporation tax rates in the entirety of the OECD. It's, it's, it's 19%. It's incredibly low. Japan, by contrast, has one of the highest. It has 30% corporation tax. It also has one of the highest growth rates, one of the highest productivity rates in the G7 in the OECD. Why is that? What makes Japan such an investment uh, prospect Um uh, sorry, one of the highest rates of private investment as a proportion of its GDP, I should have said, Japan has, and the UK has one of the lowest. And the reason for that disparity is because Japan, despite its high corporation tax rate, is an incredible investment prospect. And the reason for that isn't because it, it has low tax uh, um, tax rates, it doesn't, but because it has a much more skilled workforce than the UK, because it invests more in its education system, because it has better infrastructure, because it invests more in its transport in its you know in its in its physical infrastructure and and so these are problems that only governments can solve governments uh, educate people governments build infrastructure and so the idea that the uk is going to become suddenly a really hot uh, hot ticket for for private investment for foreign investment just because it has a lower tax burden is a total total fallacy and deeply unimaginative. And ultimately, the UK has so much work to do. Politicians have so much work to do. Unfortunately for her, Rachel Reeves might actually have to get off her arse, log off of Twitter and actually do some work as Chancellor to, to, to repair the damage done by years, decades of Tory austerity to make the UK an actually attractive prospect for foreign investors and for private investors. Because simply saying, we're not going to tax you is not going to wash. Simply having a, a, a sort of fancy lunch at the you know Labour conference, getting together representatives of the of the business world and wooing them with you know fancy cocktails and smorgasbords, like it's just not going to work. Labour thinks that it can sort of PR campaign its way to sort of wooing business, and it might work on you know your Gary Lubners or your you know. Um, the odd uh, individual philanthropist or private investor, but ultimately big companies and foreign states are going to be looking at the bottom line, are going to be looking at the UK's growth, its productivity, its policy environment, um, its political stability, and all of these things when they're making the decisions, not simply the corporation tax rate or the wealth tax rate or capital gains tax rate. And so, you know, Rachel Reeves, unfortunately for her, might actually have to do some kind of deep thought and come up with some creative solutions to actually attract foreign investment, which, as I say, is no bad thing. But simply just putting up a Kickstarter and hoping people will buy your gifts is 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 a total non-starter. Yeah, I love it. And, and, and you're so right to say this. Look, why would somebody invest in the UK? Why would you do it? Because you want to make money, right? Okay, so how are you going to make money? You might want to manufacture something. You maybe, you know, you want to produce your services over here or whatever. What are you going to need? Well-skilled workers, good infrastructure, often cheap energy, right? And the reason why many man manufacturers aren't looking at the UK right now is because their energy is too expensive or because we haven't got the right skills, the right workforce. And to improve that kind of stuff costs money. But people like Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer, they say, well, no, we'll make it an attractive investment because what we'll do is we'll go for lunches. You know, like you say, we'll go for cocktails. We'll wear, you know, we'll have a 300-pound haircut and a 2,000-pound suit, and we'll be talking to them. We'll be, we'll be very credible. We're credible people. And this will be enough. 
And that thinking is 30 years old, okay? The whole, you know, globalization is good, being your only industrial policy is completely wanting in 2023. And I feel like we're headed for a real collision with reality if they think that Britain is going to get massive investment from overseas simply because the Tories are gone, okay? You're going to have to do something a little bit better than that. If energy remains expensive, if comparative infrastructure is inferior to other similar-sized economies in Europe, then we're not. There was a great article in the FT over the weekend. You know, the, the ultra-rich are going to Paris. They're going to France. Taxes in, in France, in Paris, are much higher than they are in the UK. The reasons why, because of lifestyle, uh, social cohesion, climate, lots of reasons. Uh, so this idea that, oh, well, you can just attract investment on the ultra-rich and we can do so well. If, like you say, Rivka, we don't, uh, we don't apply a few taxes or uh, the government steps out of the way. I think people like Rachel Reeves and the political establishment like that. It's very alluring to them because it means they don't have to do anything. They don't have to do very much. Great. I can just get in the ministerial cars. I can leave politics in five years, get a job at NATO or the UN. Great. Brilliant. You know, I can, uh, my Wikipedia is going to look great when I die in 30, 40 years' time. Fantastic. Well, that's not really serving the public, is it? Next story. Does this woman want to be kissed? That's Jenny Hermoso. She plays for Spain's national team. And in that video is receiving a kiss from Luis Rubiales. Rubiales is president of the country's football federation, the RFEF. And he kissed her following the country's recent World Cup victory. Hermoso says she did not consent to that kiss, adding this in a statement. I felt vulnerable and the victim of aggression and impulsive sexist act out of place and without any kind of consent on my part. Rubiales simply says she's lying. Hermoso's team backed her to the hilt. The entire Spanish women's team have refused to play international games until Rubiales resigns. And the British squad had Hermoso's back too. Lauren Hemp shared this statement on behalf of the Lionesses. Unacceptable actions allowed to happen by a sexist and patriarchal organisation. Abuse is abuse, and we've all seen the truth. The behaviour of those who think they're invincible must not be tolerated, and people shouldn't need convincing to take action against any form of harassment. We all stand with you, Jenny Hermoso, and all players of the Spanish team. So solidarity there on display by England, even though they did lose in the final to the Spanish side. But whose side did the Spanish Federation take? On Friday, the RFEF put out the most bizarre statement imaginable. Not only did the Federation insist Rubiales was innocent, it offered a detailed analysis of photos of the kiss to prove it. They said this. Ms. Jennifer Hermoso, with her arms, grips the president of the RFEF from behind, while the president's arms are loosely placed on the player's back. Thus, no force could have been exerted. The evidence is conclusive. The president has not lied. The Federation even threatened to sue Hermoso for lying and her fellow players for striking. Oddly, FIFA was unconvinced by the Federation's pound shop forensics or by the hysterics of Rubiales. The following day, FIFA suspended the Spanish football boss pending an investigation. On Monday, Spanish prosecutors launched uh, an investigation of their own into Rubiales. And as if this story wasn't bonkers enough, on Monday, Rubiales's mother locked herself in a church and announced that she was going to go on hunger strike to protest the, quote, inhuman hunt against her son. Hunger strikes, churches, an over-adoring mother, does it get any more Southern European?
Meanwhile, the RFEF went similarly nuclear. The Federation asked UEFA to suspend Spanish teams from European competition in an attempt to save Rubiales. And yet, uh, this uh, temper tantrum abruptly shut down by was abruptly shut down by UEFA, rather, who refused the request. The investigation was a bit of a curveball for the RFEF, which was perhaps assuming the alleged assault would be dealt with in the same way that most of these things are, by people pretending it didn't happen. But now it's starting to seem like Rubiales' actions will have consequences. This is really important. On Tuesday, regional federation leaders added their voices to the growing chorus against Rubiales, and on Spanish social media, the hashtag, it's over, has been trending. All the while, Rubiales has remained unrepentant, giving speeches like this. Pero ustedes creen que es para esta cacería, para que pidan mi dimisión, es tan grave como para que yo me vaya habiendo hecho la mejor gestión de la historia del fútbol español. Ustedes creen que, que tengo que dimitir? Pues les voy a decir algo. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. I'm not leaving. Had that kind of vibe, the Netwolf of Wall Street. Uh, now, you might watch that and maybe even feel for Rubiales. You might think he's even the victim of woke cancel culture. It was only a kiss, you might say. It wasn't anything worse than that. And that's not entirely unreasonable. This isn't Harvey Weinstein, and that's fair. So why such extraordinary global attention? Well, that's because this woman was sexually assaulted in her workplace in front of millions of people. And that's absolutely what this is, sexual assault. And the reason for the, the blowback is the brazenness of all of this has been absolutely off the charts. And furthermore, the response to all of this from the Spanish Football Federation of denial and anger is in some ways as bad or even worse than what Rubiales did. Rivka, I suppose the counter-argument from someone who disagrees is that Rubiales kissed uh, a player. If he'd done that with a, a male player after winning the World Cup, then nobody would call that assault. I mean, that happens quite frequently in football. I don't think that. But what would you say in response? I mean, I would say that anyone, any sensible person would know that to kiss a man like that and to kiss a woman like that is a fundamentally different thing. And I don't think that Rubiales acted simply out of instinct thinking, oh, I would just kiss any player in this way. You know, it's not that Rubiales, it's not that Hermoso and her, her teammates and the Lionesses are making an example of Rubiales, which is, I think, the, the kind of counter narrative that we're hearing. It's that he Rubiales was making an example of her by grabbing her by the head and by forcing a kiss on her, a kiss she has said she did not want. Like, we just have to leave her that. Like, she just said that she did not want to kiss him. It's enough. He is sending a message to her and to, to all women watching, we own this game. We run this show. You know, you just have to look at that speech that he gave in front, I presume, of an audience of, of, of football kind of managers and senior football officials. Most of the men, I, I saw a couple of, uh, of women in the audience there, loudly applauding, as he said, that he wasn't going to resign, to know that football in Spain, around the world, is run by men. And this has devastating consequences for women, not just women in the sport, but women connected to the sport. And we've seen this, we've discussed this on the show before, the ongoing scandal around Mason Greenwood, the young Man United player who 
raped his girlfriend, I believe, as she she claims that um, he did, but has since withdrawn her uh, criminal case because she's pregnant with his child and probably doesn't uh, doesn't want the hassle. Um, and 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 we know that numerous alleged rapists like Mason Greenwood, like Cristiano Ronaldo, walk free because the the, the consensus around the the sort of um, the locking of of ranks around them in football is so tremendously strong. Now. Rubiales has not allegedly raped someone. He's kissed someone forcibly on the mouth and the height of their career in front of millions of people. It's a different beast. It's a different thing entirely, but it's symbolic. And the symbolism of it is, 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 is so much greater for its publicity. You know, the fact that he did this brazenly in front of millions of people, the world was watching. This was the height of her career, a moment at which she deserved the utmost respect and deference and dignity. And he just stripped it from her in a moment you know no it wasn't the same violence as Harvey Weinstein no it wasn't the same violence as Ronaldo or Greenwood but the symbolic violence of it because of its publicity and because of the message that it sent to the millions of women watching and playing the game is so profound and and I think you know we 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 see it in the in the response primarily of the federation, um, of of the players around him, of 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 Rubiales himself, of his mother. You know what amazing sisterly solidarity to lock yourself in a church to call a woman who's who's claimed that your son, uh, you know, sexually assaulted her a liar. You know, she said that she's willing to die to 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 prove this point. I mean, yeah, maybe it's the histrionics of a South uh, Southern European mother, but you know, it's 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 pathetic and it bespeaks a kind of culture. Um, um, around sexual assault that is absolutely rife in the game, as well as in society at large. Spanish society experts predict that the vast majority, possibly up to 80% of rapes in Spain, go unreported. And this is exactly why. Because when you report your sexual assault, even if it's caught on camera by millions of people, and it's there for all to see, the Spanish Federation is going to rather present a ridiculous uh, you know, uh, fake forensic crazy of of the images trying to explain why the the weight on your foot meant that no, in fact, it was the player who pushed uh, pushed into him rather than him who pushed into the player. You know, but there's going to be such uh, mental gymnastics that are going to be done to make you seem like a liar and him seem like an innocent victim to excuse what is plain for all to see. This is why women don't report rape. And this is why this whole, um, you know, incident, which was a moment and which was perhaps, you know, not as violent as other sexual assaults that women watching might have experienced or have heard about. Um, you know, this is why it's become such a major media event, because it symbolizes everything that's wrong with Spanish society, with society at large, with football, in Spain with football at large. And I think it's good. It's good that it's been made a massive example of because it's 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 a moment, you know, hopefully nothing horrendous is going to happen to Rubiales. He might lose his job. God forbid. People lose their jobs all the time. You know, I'm sure he's going to get hired by another club like in a minute. Like he's, he's, there's a criminal investigation ongoing, but if it's found that he is guilty, I mean, I don't, I'm not, an expert in Spanish law, but I don't imagine that you're going to get prison time for uh, kissing someone on the mouth uh, by force. So, you know, the consequences for Rubiales in reality are at worst going to be a slapped wrist and uh, having to find a different job.
you know, but the, the, the potential massive gain for our society for having made a statement that this is not an acceptable thing to do and, and, and that women footballers and that women, not just women footballers, but women deserve respect everywhere in their homes, in their workplaces, on the streets. I think this is a good thing. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here. And I think in a way, the response from the Spanish Football Federation and from Rubiales is worse than what happened. Obviously, what happened is bad. I think if you, if you kiss a female colleague and they're, they're without their consent, obviously, you, you're going to go. If I kissed a female colleague here at Navarro Media, I, I mean, who, who doesn't think that you, you would get in trouble for that? Obviously. And I think there's a few layers here. If it was a more junior member of staff and they apologised immediately, you know, there's a very different debate there. This guy's the president of the Football Federation. He has to uphold the highest standards. And it, 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 to me, demonstrates that clearly they put women's football at a lower level than men's football. And the idea that the Federation would say to all the players, you are, you know, you're, you know anybody who sort of supports the player in this or comes through Bialis, you're out. Uh, the idea that they would sue um, Edmoso crazy because they of course have a duty of care to those players as well i mean it's insane actually i find the whole story insane the response is insane and importantly with rubiales it's additive so he's done several things where you know it it, it kind of adds up and i think you're right rivka it, it can look unfair i mean i think probably the, the extent to which the, the the man himself's had global attention on this yeah i mean that you wouldn't say that is um what's the word appropriate but I think it's precisely because it's such a mundane thing done so conspicuously in public, as you say, at the apex of this woman's career, I, I think that's precisely why it's garnered the kind of attention uh, that it has. And, you know, he won't get his life ruined. He will, he, he, he will get a very good job at a Spanish club somewhere. Um, but I think, I think it's a really, really interesting story in so much as how, how people respond to it. I think it tells you quite a lot. I mean, he hasn't even been contritious. He apologized. But, you know, I think the best way to deal with this would have been, I've made a mistake. Um, and then he would speak privately to the players involved and the Federation would speak to the players involved. Look, we don't want to undermine your achievements. This is a great story. Let's revisit this in two or three weeks. He'll offer his resignation next month. But for now, you enjoy things. Let's just park that. Uh, you've, you've won the World Cup. Rubiales will, you know, he, he goes on gardening leave for a few weeks and then he'll resign. And I think everybody could have left that situation a little bit better. But then, paradoxically, in a way, perhaps this absurd response from Spain's equivalent of the FA has, has catalyzed a, a much broader, more important debate in Spain. Maybe, maybe there's a real upside to all of this. A final story. Nadine Doris has officially stepped down as an MP. No, really, I'm not kidding. She has finally handed the PM her resignation letter. That move comes a full 81 days after she announced her intention to stand down with, quote, immediate effect back in June. That's almost twice as long as the Trust Premiership. All of this followed the revelation that she wouldn't be receiving a peerage from Boris Johnson, which is something he promised her. Something she's blamed Rishi Sunak for ever since. So why has it taken Doris so long? Here's what she told the Daily Mail. Well, there are a number of things I wanted to do. Uh, one, as you know, was to obtain a kind of paper trail around the conversations that took place over my exit from Parliament. And the reason why is because I informed the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, of my intention to exit Parliament back in July 2022. So it was always my intention to leave initially, but I became 
under sustained pressure from members of the cabinet, backbenchers, senior members of my own local party and association. In fact, it became quite intense, the pressure not to go and to stay until a general election and not to put the party through another damaging by-election. But as you know, I, I've started writing a book into what happened to Boris Johnson and to Liz Truss, having been first-hand and witnessed what happened to them both. I started kind of doing my own investigation and it became quite apparent to me then that I couldn't remain as either a backbencher, a minister or an MP, knowing what I knew and being the author of a book which was about to expose a democratic corruption at the heart of the Conservative Party. So Doris's Scooby-Doing for her book kept her drawing her parliamentary paycheck without actually doing her parliamentary work. Later, she went into a little more detail about what's in that forthcoming book. We've had four prime ministers who've all been removed from office without any of them having lost a general election, which is, which is, which is actually quite bizarre and undemocratic. There are a group, a small group of very powerful men, both at the heart of the Conservative Party and at the heart of Downing Street, who very much control events. And I don't think many people are actually aware of that. And that's one of the things that I've uncovered in the book. But what it also represents is an absolute democratic corruption at the heart, or a corruption of democracy, rather, at the heart of the Conservative Party. Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister without a single member's vote or a vote from the public. No one has voted for him to be in that job. Nobody. And Doris penned her formal resignation letter over the weekend and published it in the mail on Sunday. At 1,800 words long, it must be one of the longest, not to mention most drama-filled in parliamentary history. And she was pretty scathing about Rishi Sunak's track record there, saying this. Since you took office a year ago, the country is run by a zombie parliament where nothing meaningful has happened. What exactly has been done or have you achieved? Sounds like me and Michael Walker. Uh, you hold the office of Prime Minister unelected without a single vote, not even from your own MPs. You have no mandate from the people and the government is adrift. You have squandered the goodwill of the nation. For what? I think that's brilliant writing. Uh, but while Sunak might be running a zombie government in a zombie parliament, according to Dorries, he's been running an effective campaign against her. It's all kind of come to a head this week because I'm actually shocked that the Prime Minister himself has kind of opened the door on free hits at me from anybody who wants to make them throughout the summer. And it's kind of whipped up a public frenzy and it's resulted in the police having to visit my home and contact me, you know, as I say, a number of times. And I'm not one of those MPs who you will ever see going on camera complaining about death threats or, you know, online abuse or threats. As far as I'm concerned, that's part and parcel of the job. And if you don't like it, get out of the kitchen, because if you want to be an MP, that's what you're going to suffer and experience. You shouldn't, but you are. However, the latest... Um, threats this week have made me realise that, um, yeah, that, that, that's why I have to uh, announce that I'm going today. You know, I, I laughed at that saying, you know, the, the frenzy. Uh, and I thought, what frenzy? We don't talk about the Dean Norris that much at the moment. But then I was reminded of, you know, we've put out several videos here at Navarro Media. They always do phenomenally well. Hundreds of thousands of views. So maybe Nadine Dorries is watching Navarro Live and uh, all these videos we put out. And, and she's thinking, these people are frenzied. They're coming after me. 
Dori's departure means that a by-election will likely be triggered when Parliament reconvenes next week. That means voters in mid-Bedfordshire could be going to the polls as soon as late September, bang in the middle of Tory conference season. Was that canny timing on Dori's part? Well, not according to her. You could end up with a by-election right in the middle of conference season. How, how do you think colleagues will feel about that at well, peak relaunch time? Any thoughts they have about that, they need to direct into number 10 because number 10 have made this happen. So it isn't me. Number 10 have made this happen. You know, I also was aware that this might not be a good thing to happen on the first anniversary of Rishi Sunak becoming prime minister in October. And all of those things, you know, were in the back of my mind, um, you know, by-elections, not good for the party, 20 points behind. It will be the worst by-election defeat in living history if it takes place. Constant messages from my peers saying, please don't do this. You will damage MPs in marginal seats. Please don't do it. The first anniversary of Rishi coming to power, conference, all of these things were at play. And yet the entire summer, Rishi Sunak has been asking for me to go. So okay. if any of my colleagues are angry, they really need to look to number 10 and ask them, what the hell are you doing? Why have you done this? Nadine Doris, whatever you say about her, she's box office. Pure drama. Rivka, with that said, are you going to be buying the book? Oh, totally. I mean, there's going to be so much material in it. At least you hope so. I mean, you've got to admire the dr uh, the grift with Nadine Doris. You just have got to admire it. Like, you know, book authors don't earn that much these days. I mean, obviously, as culture secretary uh, for, for a couple of years, Nadine Doris herself could have done something about this, but, uh, but she didn't. So be that as it may... Um, some authors have got to eat. So uh, I guess she's got her MP's salary to, to to fall back on. And, you know, she's a smart gal. I, I, I honestly, the quiet, it's like quiet. She's, she's, she's got the memo about quiet quitting, but just not the quiet part. She's just quitting in the most guns, like, you know, all guns blazing. Like, absolutely. She's going, she's setting, she's self-immolating in the most like slow motion, spectacular way imaginable. And I'm so here for it. Like the the, the 1800 word resignation uh, letter that's like redolent of that. Um, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. Like you have no mandate, Rishi Zunak. Um, it's kind of, it's it's kind of the the, the late stage of, of Toryism in, in Great Britain. Britain. you know they're totally they're done for they they're, they're sort of like you know the weight the 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 living dead um and so they're, they're just like fighting amongst themselves and allowing us all to to watch for free and in, in some ways that is Nadine Dory's greatest service as culture secretary is to create a real life political drama in which yeah. she is the protagonist yeah that's so well said Rivka she's very very good at public relations getting attention drama you're absolutely right PR Boris was the same right Lots of people on the right are the same. Only problem is, that's not really very helpful if you're trying to actually administer a country of 68 million people, as we have found out over recent years. Uh, thanks, Rivka, for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's great to be here. It was a real pleasure. And thanks, uh, everyone, for watching this evening. The show will be back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.